can open with me to Matthew 24. Um, this morning, we're going to transition into this. Uh, we won't get into the particulars of what the subject matter is uh, as far as end times. We're just going to work our way from 23 to 24 in a message that I, I believe is going to stand as, as a warning to all of us because I do think that the text in 23 was largely about warning and we had said in that series that warnings unheeded become woes and so I, I just want to tie together that so I'm actually going to begin my reading in verse 38 and going to continue into chapter 24 to verse 2. So if you have your Bibles open, uh, I ask you to stand. And I'm going to start reading in verse 38 of Matthew 23 and then sort of introduce the matter in Matthew 24. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. For I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth, till ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. And Jesus went out and departed from the temple. And his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, There shall not be left here one stone upon another, that shall not be thrown down. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this uh, stark um, departure. Help it to affect us in the right way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of my message, and I, I really wasn't sure. I had told Pastor Warner I'm going to get into 24, but um, sometimes when you're wrestling with the sermon, it uh, gets a hold of you and pins you. And I couldn't leave this idea, Jesus departs the temple. I think that's significant. I think that's something to give a thought to before we move on to his great address on end times. He departs. And there's something more to this than the fact that he just walked out the door. But it, it, it's meaningful the end of Jesus' speech is today what we might ruefully call a mic drop. <laughs> You're familiar with that in popular culture where at the end of an address, having said all there is to say, the speaker drops the mic and walks out the door. That's what's happened in this text. He walks away for 2,000 years and running. He leaves the inter, inner temple for good. The Verse 1 of chapter 24 mentions that he departed from the temple. The word there means inner, the inner sanctuary, uh, the sacred interior, the inner temple. And so the significance of this should not be lost on us that he exits the building and he crosses the threshold. And also what we don't want to miss is something that is a subtle change. He's been in the temple, and this being Wednesday 
of the final week of his life. If you remember, he came Monday. You know, he presented himself on Sunday. He came to the temple on Monday and, and Tuesday, and, and now we're getting towards Wednesday. And all that has transpired in the last couple of chapters has transpired in the temple. In the temple. And I want you to take note of this in verse uh, in chapter 21 and verse 13. This began um, the first day uh, he came you know, nigh the temple, but then the next day after he came back, he entered in and he cleansed the temple. He cleansed the temple. If you remember, this is when this all started, was when he cleansed the temple. And I want you to notice something. He, that is Jesus, channeling the voice of Jehovah in the Old Testament through the prophets, says this, And said unto them, It is written, My house shall be called the house of prayer. But ye have made it a den of thieves. You notice the possessive there. That's what I want to draw your attention to is my. He's channeling the voice of Jehovah. This is my house. And it will not be a den of thieves. It will be a house of prayer. What difference does it make? Why, why pray to him there and not in your closet? Because the idea is, is that God's special presence, his favor, his blessing is there. The house of prayer, my house. But as we end at this, as I alluded to, mic drop moment, verse 38 of chapter 23, the first verse I read to you, Behold, your house is left to you, desolate. That's the first point I want to make is desolate, desolate, desolation. The word desolate translates a Greek word which literally means wilderness or desert. As used here, desolate means abandoned, forsaken, or uninhabited. Now, I would not typically use this phrase, God-forsaken. It's not a phrase I use in my vocabulary. But that's what's literally being said. This is now God-forsaken, the house. Before we move into particulars, let's just think for a moment about what it means when God is absent, when God leaves. We know that God's omnipresent. God's everywhere. But his special presence has a unique blessing, a unique favor, a unique presence in a person's life, in a church's life. And we see even at the end of Revelation, when we get to Revelation at the end of his address to the churches at Laodicea, it seems that there he's about to leave. Because it ends without stand at the door and knock to that church in Laodicea. In other words, God's presence is special, favorable, blessing, mark of approval, can depart. Can depart. So the warning this morning is not to let this happen. Now we understand that it. If you're saved, you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, at the moment of salvation, you're sealed, 
with the Spirit under the day of your redemption. The Holy Spirit will not depart from you. He will abide with you until the end if you're truly saved. So we don't teach that. We understand that in the Old Testament, you can look at certain texts and understand that, that the Holy, Holy Spirit had what we call an upon ministry. He would come upon Samson. But then he departed from Samson. And it says of Samson, and he wist not that the Spirit of the Lord was not upon him. Now that's not going to happen to us in the same way it happens to Samson, because the Lord will remain, will abide in a believer. Yet, God's special blessing upon your life, his favor upon your life, his face, as it says in some scriptures, he will hide. And it will bring dryness and desolation. So let's not let this be lost upon us. Someone can use their usefulness. You just look at the temple. It's still gold. It's still got a laver. It's still got an altar. It's still got priests. There's still burning animals. The smoke's still going up. To every appearance of everyone looking at things, nothing changed the minute Jesus walked out. To the disciples, nothing changed. Still the same old temple. Still looks the same. They even say, how would you like a tour (laughs) of the grounds around here? Jesus said, I don't think you're understanding what I'm saying. I'm done. I'm going to send messengers, and they will dutifully come here, and they'll be scourged and beaten and killed. But I'm done. I'm leaving. It's interesting that this happened before. I'd like you to turn to Ezekiel 10. This happened before in a vision. And the vision well represents what's happening today. If we turn to Ezekiel 10, God made a pronounced exit from the first temple. And it's quite interesting as you read Ezekiel, you're often trying to imagine, if you're like me, the vehicle by which God left. Or as you would say, the glory of God. God is always everywhere. But something left. Someone left. Something happened in Ezekiel 10. And and so in Ezekiel's vision, he describes, as it were, a vehicle that bears and transports the glory of God. Look at verse 4, if you will, with me in Ezekiel 10. Then the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub and stood over the threshold of the house. And the house was filled with the cloud, and the court was full of the brightness of the Lord's glory. And then, maybe turn a page or look to the end of the chapter with me. Verses 18 and 19. It says, then the glory of the Lord departed. It's the same word that we see with Jesus from off the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubims. And the cherubims lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth in my sight. When they went out, the wheels also were beside them and everyone stood at the door of the east gate of the Lord's house. 
and the glory of the God of Israel was over them above. See, what I'm trying to emphasize or make poignant for you is the threshold. That day in Ezekiel's vision, it starts saying, in this house the glory of the Lord shone brightly and the cloud was there. But then this, this, this amazing contraption of angelic wheels and angelic beings in a very stark manner begins to go out the door on the east side, crosses the threshold, and leaves. And later, will go away. That's what I'm saying today in the message. This is a scary thought. When, 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 when God, and now it's happening with Jesus. Jesus is the glory of God, veiled in human flesh. Not in a contraption of wheels and angels, but the very Christ has dropped the mic and said, your house, it's yours now. It's yours. I'm not owning it anymore. And he walks out the door, never to return to that structure again. It's a repeat. But I believe it's the saddest thing that can happen to a ministry, to a church, to God's servant, is to witness, experience the blessing, the favor of God, the insight, the foresight. Depart. If you've ever seen this happen, you know it can happen to God's chosen and cho- some of his choicest servants. This has happened person that God once ordained and set in place to serve him is now set aside. No longer to be used. My thoughts turn to Eli. If you'll turn with me to 1 Samuel 2, Eli was not just a man of God, but in their end of the line of Aaron, In 1 Samuel 2, he was the man of God for the nation Israel. Eli and his sons were on the take, particularly his sons, and God is not pleased. 1 Samuel 2, verse 27, it's kind of marked here, and it says, And there came a man of God unto Eli. Just think for a moment, why? Eli is the man, the man, the man of God. He is the high priest. There's nobody who has a higher position in all the land. He's a judge. He judges the people. But he has a seeming lack of vision. We say, well, we know about Eli. His eyes went dim. I think the author and the narrator of 1 Samuel is, is pointing to more than just the fact that his eyes stopped working. He saw in Hannah a drunken woman who was, in fact, sick of heart. And something is wrong with Eli. And it takes another man of God who has no name and is certainly of lower rank to come and tell Eli 
Something's wrong. Something's wrong. In 27, there came a man of God unto Eli and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Did I plainly appear unto the house of thy father, that means Aaron, when they were in Egypt in Pharaoh's house? And did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to offer upon mine altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? And did I give unto the house of thy father all the offerings made by fire of the children of Israel? Wherefore kick ye at my sacrifice and at mine offering, which I have commanded in my habitation? And honorest thy sons above me to make yourselves fat with the chiefest of all the offerings of Israel, my people. Wherefore the Lord God of Israel saith, I said indeed that thy house and the house of thy father should walk before me forever. But now, the Lord saith, be it far from me, for them that honor me I will honor, and they that despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days come that I will cut off thine arm and the arm of thy father's house, that there shall not be an old man in thy house. This is 25 years before what he says will happen happens. That's interesting. Why does the man of God come and say, you're done? But for 25 years, Eli will put on the ephod. He will walk around the ark. He will keep shop. He will do the duties of the priest of Israel. Yet he's rejected. If you take the timeline, I think Samuel's about 38 when his time starts and I'm guessing, I'm just throwing that out there, that he's maybe 10 or 12 now. You could play with the timeline. But it's not unlike our story today that Jesus walked out of the temple around A.D. 30, 33. And then it's not until A.D. 70 that actually what he says, it culminates. Until that time, the temple will stand, the gold will be shined, the labor will be used, the altar will, will have sacrifices, priests will come in and out, all the motions going through all the motions, looking like it's really meaning something. But it's over. It's over for Eli. Clearly, God had departed from the house of Eli. His sight, yes, left him, but it was more than that. He lost insight. Why does God talk to a boy (laughs) instead of Eli in 1 Samuel 3? God has a message. He comes to Samuel three times, not Eli. Eli's insight, his foresight, the blessings that should accompany the office of the high priest are gone from Eli. He can't see anymore. He doesn't. He's not being used anymore. He's been set aside while he's still in the office. He's been set aside while he still wears the robe. Nothing visible has changed. Just like when Jesus walked out of the temple, nothing visibly changed. But God's blessing and God's use of this man, Eli, now it's just going to be going through the motions. He felt maybe a special duty to keep the ark. He would shoo his sons away from it. 
But on the day he dies, the ark goes. It's a sad story. And so I'm saying to you, this is a warning, Christian. Listen, don't allow this to happen to you. Don't be a shell. Just the appearance lingers while you cling and grasp to the former days. Smoke's still going up. A marriage can be that way. Two people still living in the same house, sharing the same last name, but the relationship has gone stale. Smoldering embers of what was once a fire remained, and the two live in dutiful persistence. It's just too much for each to leave, so they stay. Don't let that be your spiritual state. Even sadder, men upon whom God's blessings fell like manna, men who are greatly used in the ministry, men approved of God, can become a shell, an empty shell. Soldier living on past success, trying to relive the glory years. But God is not with them. God is is not winning their battles. God is not fighting for them. And then they find out, I guess it always was because of God's invisible hand. I'm guessing it always was because of God's favor. It was never me. God's absence might be purposeful to show a person that it was always God. It was never you. It was never me. I'm not talking about his Holy Spirit departing the believer. That will not happen. I'm talking about his absence, the absence of God's victory, God's blessing, God's mark of approval. That's what I'm trying to talk to you about. It can leave. This week, Pastor Warner talked to us in devotions about how God's favor followed him everywhere he went. When he was at Big Lots, he was blessed. And, 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 and we were talking about Ezra and how God had favor upon his people to bring his people back. And you know it. If you're a Christian that's living for God and you will look back at your life and you'll say, I don't know how, but God just blessed. He just had favor. He just loaded me with benefits. He crowned the year with goodness. He was there for me. How much more noticeable when he's absent and he's withdrawn. So let's look at what are the marks of God's absence from a life. I'm not talking about the Holy Spirit being God. I'm talking about victory, blessing, mark of approval. Jeremiah 11.3. You see, Jesus had said, My house, he was channeling the voice of Jehovah. He, of course, is Jehovah, so he can do that. Shall be called a house of prayer. And not a den of thieves. And he's actually speaking Jeremiah's words. God's words, speaking as God himself. 
But one of the marks and one of the signs, this place is called a house of prayer. Okay, that's what it's called. My house is a house of prayer. So what does it look like when Jesus departs the temple, when it's your house is left unto you as a wilderness and desolate? It still looks the same. But what's absent is answered prayer. What's absent, if you want to use an anthropomorphism with God, his ears. God's ears aren't there. God's ears aren't towards you anymore. Jeremiah 11. And he talks about um, various things here, the covenant, how it's broken, and how he would bless them, and, and, and so many more things. But they didn't follow. Verse 14, Therefore, pray not thou for this people. Jeremiah, my ear goes to you. I listen to you, Jeremiah. But I'm going to tell you, don't pray for them. Why? Neither lift up a cry or prayer for them, for I will not hear them in the time that they cry unto me for their trouble. He's talking about his house, the temple where Jeremiah spent much time. Solomon dedicated that temple and said, this is going to be a house of prayer. And if my people, you know, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and, you know, and they'll pray, I will hear from heaven, I will save their land. You remember all those promises, but now God says no more. He says the problem is they're idolatrous. They have an idol in their heart. They, they love their idol, and guess what? Their idol is dumb. He doesn't hear. You can do all of the praying you want to your dumb idol. He's not hearing you. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to actually shut my ears, and I'm going to be a dumb idol unto you to teach you a lesson. I'm turning into a deaf idol. I'm not going to hear you anymore. And we know the verse, if I regard iniquity in my heart, I will not hear me. And so an absence in your life can be an absence of answered prayer. And if it's, if it's absent in your life, if your prayer life is not what it should be, you have to look, what is my idol? What is my iniquity? Where am I lawless? That's what the word iniquity means. Where have I departed from the Lord in my heart? So that he doesn't hear me. He isn't hearing my prayer. And it's not to say that sometimes you don't wait a long time as you pray for things, but there's a certain reality to living the Christian life that you are praying and you're seeing prayers answered in real time. And you're able to thank God and praise God. It's just a sign of spiritual health. It's a sign that, that his ears are open unto you that he wants to hear your prayers, that he answers your prayers. His ears can be absent if you regard iniquity or if you put an idol above him. His face, if you want to go with another anthropomorphism, and we know God doesn't have literal ears, nor does he have a literal face, but the Bible speaks of his face in Psalm 30. Psalm 30. David is having a difficult time 
And he writes Psalm 30 after it's all over. You say, well, why? Why was he having such a difficult time? Because of sin. See, this is normally why this happens in a person's life, is because of sin. They regard iniquity in their heart, and I will not hear thee. But also, I will hide my face from you. And David has gotten through this, and he's written this psalm to explain how happy he is this is over. But in the midst of the psalm, we have a verse in 7. Lord, thy favor thou hast made my mountain. By thy favor thou hast made my mountain to stand strong. Thou didst hide thy face, and I was troubled. So here we have a definition of what God's face is. It's his favor. Okay, God's face, when his face is upon us, David is saying he favors us. His favor is upon us. We know that. David knew it so well, it was very noticeable when it was gone. Why? Because David numbered the people. That's the story of Psalm 30. He did not listen. He did not listen to counsel. He received counsel of the law. Don't number the people. He received counsel of Joab, who said, why, why would you do such a thing? I don't even want to do it, David. You make me sick. Don't do that. That is not right. David said, I'm the king. Do it. You want to have God against you? Don't listen to the counsel of your friends. Don't listen to the counsel of the word of God. Just do it your way. But then you'll find God's favor is not on me. We know what happened. God was enraged. And who caused it all? Well, you can look at different things. It was Satan. (laughs) Satan um, provoked him, the Bible says. It provoked him with pride. Because that's what Satan does. I'm the king. I make the rules. I don't need to listen to anybody. I'm not going to listen to Joab. I want to do it. I'm going to do it. We did it. We know he had his punishment, right? He had the choice of three things. And he picked the plague. Because he said that if I fall into the hands of mine enemies, they'll have no mercy. But if I fall into the hands of God, he will have mercy on me. And so the plague moved throughout Israel. And 70,000 people died. And the plague came nigh unto his door and into his house, and his servants began to get it. And he got it. And he was on his sickbed. And he found out what it's like when God's face has been hid. He ailed. He felt pain. He had the sickness of death. But he repented. He was wrong. He admitted it. He sought God's mercy, and God heard him. Verse 8, I cried to thee, O Lord, and unto the Lord I made supplication. Save me, he says, save me from this mess. And God did, and God restored him. His ears can depart, his face and his favor can depart. I say, say you, you, you know it if you're a Christian. You just know it. It's, it's not a good luck charm. It's not a rabbit foot. It's not anything like that. But you just know throughout the course of your life as you move from place to place, you just see 
God's favor. You see him smile upon you. You see him, like David, make your way in this world. But what about his hand? Your usefulness. His hand, like I'm saying, like you're a tool. Uh, you're a tool to be used of God. His hand. I'm thinking about Second Timothy 2. When God reaches into the cupboard, as it were, and puts you in place of usefulness, this is talked about even within the church, the great house. And you can imagine the, the vessels in a house and pottery and this, you know, I'm just thinking of you ladies, as you have your, your kitchen, you have trusty knives, you have uh, a serving pitcher that just fits your hand. You have these implements in the kitchen that are useful to you. And we're being implored to be that. In verse 20, it talks of this. But in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver. Those are the things that you put out and that you use for your company and that are trusty. But also of wood and earth, of earth and some to honor and some to dishonor. If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use and prepared unto every good work. What it means is to be easy to use. Does God find you easy to use? Because if he does, his hand will be upon you. Some people are easy to use. Just like that, that favorite kitchen utensil that you have, just like that pitcher that you like to serve, it's easy to use. It's at hand, and, and you put it into practice. But there's also this vessel that someone says, you know what, I don't even know what I'm going to do. I guess I'll just pot a plant in it. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll do it, I'll use it for something else, because it's just not, it's, it's too, it's not useful. It's not useful to me for its intended purpose, for its intended design, because it's difficult to use. And so you're not neat or fit or proper or ready to be used of God. And so sometimes a Christian gets put on the shelf, or in sports we like to say on the bench. <laughs> and, and you're like, why am I here? Because you're not, you're not making yourself easy to use. Easy to coach, easy to handle. Well, finally, God can remove your place, your reward, and your prize. First Corinthians nine can depart. We look at the last verse of this chapter of First Corinthians nine and talk about how you can lose. God's special approval, his mark of approval upon your life. And Paul said, I'm so scared. I'm literally so afraid. I'm so careful that I might lose this mark of approval upon my life that I buffet myself, which means to take these boxing gloves and in order you know, to make yourself a better boxer, you, you have to take some hits, right? You've got you to 
get your hits and spar. He spars with himself and, and beats himself to get his body under control, lest, as he says here, verse 27, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Like those stones of the temple, Jesus says they're going to be thrown down the hill. I don't want to be thrown away. What does this word mean? What does this verse mean? Well, the word castaway is a metallurgical word. It means that it's uh, a, a piece of material. Uh, you know, I think probably Derek would really relate to this being in quality rejected. It's been rejected. It's not passed the test. And so you can have on your um, shop floor a million dollars worth of manufactured parts, but if you find out that it's failed a test, a stress test, a torsional test, a test of some kind, it's now a paperweight. <laughs> I used to have that in my office as a plant manager. Every plant manager has it. And uh, we, we call it the box of shame. <laughs> and, you know, when the young guys come in at work and you say, this is, this is a turbine wheel. Why is it in the box? Well, because it ate itself up. <laughs> it was spinning at 37,000 RPM, and something came in there, and you could see how the, how the impellers are, are deformed. And so now it's no good. That's why it's in the box. Why don't you throw it away? Well, because that cost $50,000 <laughs> to replace it. And so, you know, I, we keep it. And I had the box, and I had transition joints and I had what are these well these failed we had to take them out it was two million dollars you know all these kinds of horror stories these grizzled plant managers keep the box of rejected parts no longer useful no longer meant to be put in practice now just like you say a paperweight something to be a museum piece and so it cast away here means it's it's, it's been failed the quality test now, what does preach mean? This is interesting here. It says preached, which is a derivative of the word karuks, which we all understand to be a herald. But in this particular instance, we have this found in a um, sports metaphor. Okay, we, we understand we're in a sports metaphor. Verse 24, know ye not that they which run in a race run all? Okay, so we're in a sports metaphor. And in, in, in those sports, when they would run a race, there would be a referee. But unlike our referees, they are participants. So the referee was a playing referee. And the playing referee would gather around as they would get at the starting blocks, and they would say, here's the rules. This is the rules of the race. I'm running the race too. But these are the rules. For you, for me, to follow as we run the race. And that's, that's the pastor. He's a participant. He's, a, he's a, one that's giving the rules to other people as well as participating with you. And if that happens, and, and, and I'm saying this is the rule, stay in your lane. And when you go around the turn, stay in your lane. And you can't leave your lane until you get to this, and then you can leave your lane, like in the track and field meet. But, you know, what if I, the one that have announced the rules before the race, and now I'm ready to go in the blocks, 
I start running over people. I start going out of the lines. I start doing it my own way and cut them off. And I get to the end and, and I won. And you're not even competing, really. I mean, we're all trying to get to the finish line. It'd be like going on the roadway and seeing that car that has driver instructor on it. And you're like, oh, that's a driver instructor. He's driving. He's going 80. And he's weaving in and out of traffic. He's a driving instructor. He shouldn't be doing that. He tells other people how to drive, but he's not following the rules. That's what this is talking about. And so you can, you can become, you can lose your reward. Now, some would say that Paul was concerned that, in fact, he might be exposed as a false professor because this word castaway is also used in one of the pastoral epistles for a false profession. Um, I'm not fully convinced of that. I tend to look not so much semantically when I interpret, but I look contextually first. And so there's a reward in the gospel. It says this in verse um, 16. For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yea, woe is it unto me if I preach not the gospel. For if I do this thing willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will a dispensation of the gospel is committed unto me, what is my reward then? Verily that when I preach the gospel, I may make the gospel of Christ without charge, that I abuse not my power in the gospel. The reward is that you continue to get to preach <laughs> free, freely. Uh, and that's, I mean, I, that's the interpretation of no less than Jonathan Edwards on this text. And, 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 and I, I, I see it that way. I see it that, that Paul has this wonderful opportunity. He gets to preach. And when he gets to preach, he does it for free, which you say doesn't sound like a great opportunity. But it is because he's mounting in heaven rewards because he gave up a salary. He didn't have any. Uh, he would go places and he would work and he would preach. And so in, there's a reward for this, the free preaching of the gospel. But if he breaks the rules, his reward is gone. Just like if you're disqualified. You run the race, you may have finished the race, you may have got to the ribbon first, but if you didn't run lawfully, it's like you never ran. You're DQ'd. Don't let that happen to you. Don't lose, don't let that depart. What does it all mean as we bring it together? It's a warning. Don't let this, don't ever let this happen. Stay close to God. Stay right with God. Keep, keep short accounts with God. Don't stray from God. Don't ever think that you're above yourself from falling. Listen to the counsel of the Joabs in your life and the people that are trying to help you. Don't just do your own thing and be like the temple and just keep meeting and running business as usual. Jesus is gone. You know how devastating this demolition was of the temple? The stones that made up the temple were as big as 40 foot by 12 foot by 12 foot, weighing more than 100 tons, specially quarried for the temple. The building site was monumental, on top of a mount, a promontory. And there had to have been a massive effort of beast and machinery, a modern marvel to get all those stones at the top of the mountain. And there was a retaining wall holding the mountain. And Jesus is now outside the threshold and the disciples are saying, look 
at everything here. The outbuildings and the bulwarks of this wonderful structure and all that it took to get all this in place. And Jesus says to them, these 40-foot stones are going to get thrown down. Historians tell us that after Jerusalem was invaded, after it was razed, after it was destroyed, nobody knew where the temple even was. Don't let that be you. Gone. That's what Paul is saying. Get to the end. And all that I did, all my labors, all that I did for God, like it was nothing. Like it never happened. Don't let that be you. Father, we thank you for this warning in Scripture that the sacredness and consecration of a place can depart and may not even know it. Let us be warned and let's take it seriously, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.